Everybody? How are we doing sound-wise? We okay, Rowan? Good, great, lovely. Well, um, you might remember the film Forrest Gump. I need my glasses. <clears throat> oh, there you are. Right, great. You might remember the film Forrest Gump. Uh, at one point in that movie, the central character, a man named Forrest Gump, a gardener from Greenbow, Alabama, Alabama <clears throat> for no particular reason, decided to go for a little run. He just keeps on going until he's crossed the United States of America from sea to shining sea five times. When he got tired, he slept. When he got hungry, he ate. And when he had to go, you know, he went. And so he just ran. He'd think a lot about Mama and Baba and Lieutenant Dan. But most of all, he'd think about Jenny. He thought about her a lot. After a period of time, the media became aware of this oddity, and, and Forrest Gump begins to attract attention. And at one point on that odyssey, a young man joins him. Spotting him, he runs up to him and says, It's you! I, I can't believe it's really you! I mean, it was like an alarm went off in my head, you know? I said, here's someone who's got his act together. Here's someone who's um, got it all figured out. Here's someone who has the answer. I'd follow you anywhere, Mr. Gump. And so Forrest got company. And actually, Mr. Gump accumulates a whole crowd of followers, people imitating him, copying him, running behind him wherever he goes. And in actual fact, uh, in real life, people did imitate the fictional Forrest Gump. British runner R Bob Pope recreated Forrest's entire run five times across the U.S., the only person to have done so, so far, as far as I know. But let's think for a bit, why might Forrest's running have appealed to people? And the answer is not difficult. It's the appeal of a simple life, an ascetic life, which means a life of rigorous self-discipline and self-denial, abstaining from all forms of self-indulgence, a life of prayer, fasting, thought, and contemplation. Its appeal to people, especially in times of stress, crisis, change, its appeal to people is well understood. Well, we're taking a break from our usual diet of expository Bible sermons to take a look at where we've been, historically speaking, and what we might learn from that today. And we're looking at an era that we might call the birth of Christendom, AD 312 to 590. And two weeks ago, we looked at the conversion of Constantine, a watershed moment in the history of the church. The best thing or the worst thing that has ever happened to the church depending upon who you ask, or possibly, indeed, probably, actually, both 
the best thing and the worst thing that has ever happened to the church. Overnight, the church going from illegal, persecuted, underground, to suddenly the official state religion of the Holy Roman Empire. And we saw how, with this change, many Christians themselves, they began thinking about themselves and they began thinking about their faith in terms that actually were more pagan than biblical. And that's what the challenge of the last two weeks has been, for us to check our frames of reference. So before uh, the so-named conversion of Constantine, there were hermits, uh, not crabs living in shells, but actually the word hermit comes from a set of interrelated Greek words meaning solitary, desolate, or wilderness. Anthony of Coma in Lower Egypt, he was born around 250 AD to wealthy landowning parents. He was about 20 years old when his parents died, leaving the estate to him. Convinced he needed to obey Christ's words to the rich young man in Matthew 19, 21, he gave his lands away to his neighbors, sold his remaining possessions, gave the money to the poor, and then lived the rest of his life as a hermit, typically living in remote tombs. Known today as Anthony the Great or uh, St. Anthony, he is often recognized as being the first monk, although there were probably a small number before him pursuing similar lifestyles. And what was his lifestyle? Well, it was about rejecting utterly the world and its temptations, the flesh and its temptations. It was about prayer, meditation, contemplation, the study of the scriptures, and fasting. It was about battling with and hopefully mastering temptation and growing in self-control. Such an approach to Christian discipleship wasn't unknown before him, but the moment in history that we're looking at, the beginning of the Constantinian era, saw a huge leap in the popularity of pursuing such a lifestyle. And again, it's not difficult for us to see why. Before Constantine, the heroes of the church were, by and large, the bishops. The bishops led lives of apostolic-like poverty and deprivation, learned men who spent their time studying the scriptures, praying and fasting, and teaching. And they were the ones most likely to be informed upon to the authorities and end up being tortured and executed for their faith, dying as martyrs. But the end of persecution turned that, of course, upside down. Suddenly it was fashionable, if not compulsory, to be a Christian, and churches were filled with half-converted or unconverted pagans. The church became literally a pillar of the social establishment. Gregory of um, Naziensis complained, the chief seat, in other words, the, 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 the uh, bishop's um, occupation, the, the chief seat is gained by doing evil, not by virtue, and the sees, uh, that is to say the jurisdiction of the bishops, the sees 
belong not to the worthy, but to the more powerful. In other words, the churches were soon places of worldliness and indeed often conspicuous and extreme worldliness, self-indulgence and ostentatious affluence, selfish ambition, political manipulation, fashion and prestige. Welcome to the church. And suddenly the hermits, or the desert fathers as they're also known, they were the new spiritual heroes. And they started to attract large crowds, people wanting answers, people wanting authentic Christian teaching, people wanting something that they could imitate and copy. One hermit, Simon Stylites, he was so irritated by the crowds that came to see him and the distractions of the people asking him questions all the time that he abandoned his cave and he erected himself a column. And he lived the next 37 years on a tiny platform on top of a pillar. And this was near Aleppo in modern-day Syria. And when he got tired, he slept. And when he got hungry, his disciples put food in baskets, and he heaved it up. And when he had to go, you know, he went. Well, a number of others followed his example. You might have heard of Simon Stylites, but you might not know that a whole movement grew out of that people living on top of pillars, living above the world and worldliness as a prophetic statement. And whilst this movement of desert monks continued to grow, especially around Egypt, the next step in our story today was the development of the first monasteries, hermits living in community. And the first monastery was established uh, in uh, or around 320 AD, and the plan was for the monks to submit to a strict routine of hard manual labor, frequent and regular times of worship and prayer, and a uniform pattern of dress. And the monks took three vows, a vow of poverty, claiming no possessions as their own, a vow of chastity, renouncing marriage, um, in addition to, of course, obviously, sexual immorality, but now re going re renouncing even marriage. And thirdly, a vow of obedience, which meant in surrendering pride and ego, the monks surrendered what we'd call autonomy to the head monk or abbot. They did whatever the abbot told them to do. One important monk to know about, his name was Jerome, and he lived from 340 to 420 AD, and soon after his conversion to faith in Jesus Christ, he adopted the life of a hermit and became a hermit monk in the Syrian desert. But he found the temptations associated with loneliness and idleness too difficult to deal with, except that he put himself under a really harsh uh, intellectual disciplines. He needed that. And so he devoted himself to the study of the Hebrew language and to the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Traveling to Rome and then to a monastery in Bethlehem, his knowledge and skills were put to a variety of uses, culminating in him translating both the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament and the Greek scriptures of the New Testament 
into the lingua franca, the common language of the day, the language that everybody spoke, which was Latin at that point in history. And his Latin translation of the Bible, called the Vulgate, was then the universally recognized and authorized translation of the Bible until the 16th century. And it is still widely used in Roman Catholic churches today, a kind of Roman Catholic equivalent, if you like, to the English-speaking world's King James translation. The uh, lifestyle of the desert fathers or desert monks, that did not catch on particularly well in the western half of uh, the Roman Empire. But monasticism, hermits living in community, that did catch on. And with respect to what we might call Western monasticism, the next person to know is Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, I mean Benedict of Norcia, uh, Italy. Born in 480 AD, Benedict began his Christian life as a hermit in a cave in the wild country south of Rome. And he spent three years there studying the scriptures and praying until a local group of monks chose him as their abbot. But that didn't go well. Benedict imposed a very strict regime on them, and they thought it best to poison him. Narrowly escaping death, he fled and eventually found himself establishing a new monastery on Monte Cassino, 85 miles southeast of Rome. Today, this monastery, I understand, is considered to be the most famous monastery in the world. And he also went on to found, I think, 12 communities around Subiaco, Italy. There, in Subiaco, he wrote a volume of 73 chapters that today we call the Rule of Be St. Benedict, a rule for living, a way of life for monks living together. And the rule has flourished because Benedict, rather than being a gifted theologian or teacher, he was a gifted administrator and a very insightful man when it came to human nature. Um, and he'd had some hard lessons in life, like being poisoned. So the Benedictine monk, what does he do? Well, actually, he devotes his life to regular periods of work, study, prayer, and worship. They worship all together seven times a day, um, 4 a.m., um, vigils, uh, 5.30 a.m., lords, 8.45 a.m., terse, 1 p.m., sect, 2 p.m., none, 5.50 p.m., vespers, 7.30 p.m., compline. But many of these worship services are, are, are just very short, maybe 20 minutes or so, and they're mostly comprised of praying the Psalms together. Benedict uh, introduced uh, the, the, the notion of being a novice. So you could have a go for a year without having to take vows, and then you could make a decision after a year. And he also put in a system that was very democratic where the abbot, sure, you had to obey everything he said, but he was elected and he didn't take any decisions without consulting the entire community. Uh, Benedict introduced two further vows, two earlier vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. The vow of stability means that the monk devotes himself to life in that 
same monastery for his entire life without ever leaving it. Uh, the monks um, at, at the Benedictine Monastery in New Norcia here in WA have likewise devoted to live their entire lives in that community. And a vow of fidelity, the fifth vow, means that the monks vow uh, make a vow of loyalty to the ideals of that lifestyle, a vow, a vow of faithfulness to the ideals behind the other vows, if you like. Well, <clears throat> Protestant Christians, we tend to view monasticism either with quizzical condensation or with hostility. Uh, Martin Luther the man who more than anyone else began the European Reformation, Martin Luther was himself a monk until his conversion to faith in Jesus Christ um, through reading the scriptures. As far as he was concerned, the one place you couldn't be a Christian was in a monastery. It's, it's worth noting that over time, indeed, as Martin Luther knew only all too well, monasteries did indeed grow to be extremely wealthy through the gifts of land and money, in times becoming themselves places of indulgence, corruption, and vice. As, as Protestants, we stand in history in a place where we can view the fundamental irony connected with monasticism. What is that irony? Well, the irony is people trying to escape the problems of institutional Christianity ultimately invented their own form of institutional Christianity, which was riddled with exactly the same problems as the old version. The same problems that originally fled. Indeed, so riddled with these problems that others would assume that its members weren't and couldn't be real Christians. Nevertheless, as Protestant Christians, we would be wise to thank God for the monastic movements of times gone by and to recognize their extraordinary contribution to making a better world for us to live in today. Historically, monasteries became places of learning. Schools and, in fact, universities are a monastic invention. But they were also hospitals, hotels for travelers, and places of sanctuary for the vulnerable and the hunted. They became places of aid and welfare for the needy. Primarily, though, of course, they became places of scholarship. Every Benedictine community had a library. And pretty much all of the ancient literature that we have today, Greek, Roman, Hebrew, Christian, um, Middle Eastern, it's been preserved for us by monk copyists. Inventions springing from monasteries include, but are not limited to, universities, as I said before, um, a simple standardized alphabet, coffee, champagne, the fork, the clock, spectacles, a way of writing down music, stained glass, genetics, because, of course, Grigor Mendel was a monk, and double-entry accounting. I don't know what double-entry accounting is, but I'm sure it must be great 
sure know what coffee is. Spiritually, these monasteries stood for centuries as a visible prophetic witness to the truth of the gospel and to the beauty of a life devoted to Christ through times of extreme darkness often in the world, extreme darkness in the world, and even in times of extreme darkness in the church. Jesus calling people out of the world and into his kingdom. And that this call is irresistible and also perfect freedom. Now, if this was a history lecture, we could end it there. But our question for today is, what can we learn about this movement in the early Constantinian era that might help us with our Christian walk today? Let's reconsider our frames of reference. And I'd like to make two points. Firstly, let's consider the appeal of asceticism. Let's think about that. Since the birth of the church, there has always been the temptation to believe that God offers us two ways to live. To borrow that phrase just for a moment, a normal spirituality and a super spirituality. That temptation's always been there. It's an enticing temptation. Pretty much all denominations and traditions have assumptions as to who the spiritual superheroes are and who the normal Christians are. Martyrs versus non-martyrs. Churchgoers versus hermits. Ordinary churchgoers versus monks in monasteries. Clergy versus laity. Missionaries versus non-missionaries. There are always hierarchies as to whom is considered to be the more devoted, the more self-sacrificial, the more super-spiritual Christian. Um, when I became a Christian in this church in 1992, um, I found a fellowship of young people, uh, late teens through to early 30s, who were passionate for Christ in a way that, in all fairness, is pretty unusual. This church was, to use the phrase of the day, into radical Christianity. For a time, our, our rectory was one of several St. Barnabas households used by groups of single Christians to pursue, essentially, monastic ideals. No personal property, all possessions shared, a common purse, etc., etc., and there was, to speak candidly, enormous pride in that. We thought we were all pretty cool. Until it all fell apart. We weren't nominal. We were radical. And we were quite sure that we were accruing extra brownie points in heaven. But Paul writes, nevertheless... 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcised is no circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person 
should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now, Paul goes on to explain that change in circumstances is conversely not necessarily wrong, but he is confronting that common Christian temptation, especially found in new Christians, to believe that following Jesus must necessarily mean a radical change in life circumstances in order to demonstrate commitment. What God wants is faithfulness to Christ in the different places to which he has called us. The New Testament, therefore, knows only one vocation, the call to follow Jesus and to be conformed to his likeness. Ordained ministry is not my vocation. It is my occupation. And it is no better or worse than any other occupation that Jesus might have called me to. My vocation, on the other hand, is identical to your vocation, the calling into the community of the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ, his Son, and to be conformed to his likeness. That is our vocation. There's only one. Yes, of course, treating pastors, teachers, elders with respect is biblical, but thinking of such people as ontologically different, in other words, as some kind of fundamentally different or superior type of Christian, that is a thoroughly pagan idea. Common enough in the church, utterly pagan, and therefore dangerous nonsense. The tradition of the desert monks flourished in the time that we're looking at because in part of this temptation, the temptation of super-spirituality and how that forms part of the appeal of asceticism. Look how tough I'm doing it for Jesus. And such thinking might prompt us to examine, secondly, the authenticity of asceticism. Let's think about that biblically, and that's because it's easy to believe, it's actually easy to believe that the Bible advocates asceticism. Indeed, it's easy to believe that the Bible advocates extreme asceticism. So let's see if that's true. Just as a refresher, asceticism is extreme self-denial, with respect to pleasures, physical appetites, worldly ambitions, combined with ruthless self-discipline, uh, the harsh treatment of the body, usually in the pursuit of spiritual or, philosoph or philosophical ideals. Well, Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for somebody to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? 
Paul writes that we do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the, governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And... For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do whatever you want. And Paul writes, No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I do not disqualify myself for the prize. James tells us that love for the world is hatred towards God. And John wrote, do not love the world or anything in the world. For anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Surely, in all of those texts, we have all the proof that we need to see that the life choice of the desert monks is not only advisable and praiseworthy, but actually compulsory. But of course, as many of you will have already realized, I'm quoting those scriptures out of their context in order to twist their meaning. You see, it's a common insight granted to all humanity that, if not checked, our basic creaturely physical appetites for food, drink, taste, pleasure, sensual and sexual, together with our common human desires for attention, approval, fulfillment, advancement, recognition, and power. These things together, they will be, continue to be the source of all kinds of trouble unless they're kept in check. And with that insight, granted to all humanity, throughout history, different philosophies, religions, and traditions have arisen, and they generally take one of two approaches to that problem. Hedonism or Stoic Spartanism. Total acceptance or total rejection. Our desires and feelings are either gods that must be obeyed and listened to, so thus, for example, the culture of our day, or they're demons to be resisted and denied at all costs. So the Stoics and Spartans of ancient Greece. But in contrast to these two pagan ways of thinking, the Bible sees our basic physical appetites and our fundamental psychological desires as fundamentally good gifts from God. But as fallen creatures, we must recognize that we use those good desires and appetites sinfully, selfishly, according to our own rules, as competitors, becoming competitors, predators, or parasites with respect to each other, our needs before others, in rejection of God and his word. As sinful people, our desires are untrustworthy, good and from God, but utterly untrustworthy, promising the world, delivering dissatisfaction. This is what the New Testament usually means when it refers to such things as the flesh, 
or the lust of the flesh or the sinful nature. Not the appetites themselves, but the appetites in their fallen nature. And that is an incredibly important distinction. Christians thinking in pagan terms about sex and marriage were profoundly uncomfortable with marriage because didn't that mean the possibility of enjoying sex? And how could you be a Christian if, you, if that happened? And doesn't the, the Bible condemn sexual pleasure and, and desire? We can't have anything to do with marriage then. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. No, it doesn't. But it does place those things in a context with boundaries and with beautiful, relational, loving boundaries. Isn't, therefore, isn't my enjoyment of material things, isn't that friendship with the world? No, no, actually it isn't. The world, when, it's, when that word is used disapprovingly in Scripture, means that human system of organization set up in willful, willful ignorance of God. And isn't my desire, are my desires for attention, approval, recognition, and respect nothing but rank sinfulness and self-centeredness? Well, yes. And until we realize that those desires are God-given, but can only truly and lastingly be satisfied by Jesus, who wants to meet my every need. So then, it is biblical to fast occasionally, to work towards self-control, hand in hand with the Spirit with respect to appetites and desires, but with respect to asceticism and its authority, let's leave the last word to Paul through the voice of Naomi. <laughs>